Hi everyone, it's Steve Hilton here. This is the latest edition of the Positive Populist Podcast, and I am so excited today to welcome our guest. He's someone I've known for a long time. We've had conversations about a whole range of things, um, and I'm sure we will run out of time to cover all the interesting things we could possibly cover. But here he is, Rehan Salam. He is the executive editor. Did I get that right? Of National yes, Review, exactly. And you've got a brilliant new book out, not so new, but uh, last couple of months, uh, Melting Pot or Civil War. Um, and just remind me of the subtitle. I a don't want to get it wrong. Of immigrants makes the case against open borders. There you go. So great, great book um, to add to your collection of great books that you've written and, and articles and so on. You're just big, big, influential figure in uh, in politics here. But um, I want to start by asking you the question I ask all my guests: Are you Rehan Salam? Are you and could you be in the future a positive populist? I could absolutely be a positive populist. So what does that mean to you? Well, to me, it means that a program that isn't just about railing against elites, isn't just complaining about the status quo, but offering a substantive, constructive program about how to make our country and the world a better place. So why does that speak to you? What is it about your story that that makes that concept resonate? Because for me, a lot of this, I know, goes back to my personal experiences and and so on. I was just interested in in, in in that aspect as it relates to your life and, and how it's evolved. Well, there's a lot to it. There's a personal component to it and there's a larger intellectual ideological component to it. I'll start with the latter, which is just to say that conservatism uh, is an enormously valuable um, set of ideas, but it's a set of ideas that is oftentimes associated with elitism, with a defense of the status quo, even when the status quo is creaking or failing. And as a conservative, I resent that idea. I resent the idea that we always want to defend the established order when that established order is actually a threat to some of the other longstanding mm-hmm. virtues about our society that we want to protect and defend and preserve. Uh, so that's why I think populism can actually be a very, very valuable complement to conservatism. The problem with populism, however, is that it's often the case that populism can become excessively negative, Mm -hmm. defined against uh, rather than actually offering some alternative. So that's intellectually why the idea of a positive populism is so attractive to me. Uh, Personally, uh, you know, it's just coming from, you know, having grown up in Working in middle-class neighborhoods in the outer boroughs of New York uh, and just having grown up around a lot of incredibly decent, hardworking people who really struggled, uh, who didn't necessarily have all of the opportunities mm-hmm. they needed to lead flourishing, decent lives. These were not necessarily people who were looking to you know, become part of some elite. These were people who just wanted decent, stable, good lives and were willing to work for it, but who found themselves adrift uh, in a changing world. And, and I just feel that is a universe of people I want to protect. Uh, I want to help flourish uh, in a changing world. It's something that I identify with myself. Is that, is that because it could have been you? Absolutely. Uh, I often think about this. So, um, you know, when I think about the particular circumstances of my upbringing, it was all just really contingent. You know, for example, my father, uh, at a certain point when I was maybe five, six years old, he got a really 
decent civil service job, mm-hmm. and he was also able to moonlight you, you as an accountant. Here in, in, I was. In I was born in New York City. Yeah. That's right. And my mother was also able to work at that time <laughs> because I had older sisters who were able to look after me, so that took some of the burden off of and her. Just a, they, and they were, um, as you, this is one of the yes. stories you tell, yes. actually a big part of your book, right? Yep. They were immigrants from from Bangladesh. Right. And they were they came to the U.S. as very little kids. My my older sisters, but because of that, my parents were able to both work two jobs, and so that gave us a little bit of breathing room. They mm-hmm. were able to afford to buy a house. They were able to save a bit of money. They were able to give us some more opportunities. We were able to live in a relatively safe neighborhood. But you know, had my father not gotten that job, you know, the who c- knows civil what would have happened? Job. Exactly. Uh, then you know, it would have been a much tougher situation. It's really hard to know what exactly. That would have looked like. Um, I also think about you know going to school. The fact that you know there are kids who burden under negative stereotypes, mm-hmm. and there are other kids who benefit from positive stereotypes. And funnily enough, I think I benefited from a positive stereotype uh, because you know I happened to speak a certain way. Uh, then a lot of my teachers thought, "Aha, this kid must be very bright." What do you and, mean you know, by that? Speak a certain. Um, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and yeah. in Brooklyn, there are a lot of folks who have you know old-time Brooklyn, uh, Brooklynites, uh, you know, you have a strong local accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of brilliant people who have that local accent. But, you know, because there's a prejudice against it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you kind of assume that people who speak in that particular way are not necessarily uh, terribly intellectual. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, because my parents are immigrants, I spoke in a somewhat different way. And so because of that, uh, I'm pretty sure people thought, aha, he, this, this young man must be very articulate. And then when people think that you're very articulate, <laughs> then they're likely to give you the benefit of the doubt. I know it sounds really silly, but there are these very, very small, small things that send you cues. They send you signals that you're this type of person. You ought to have these ambitions. And um, I just always thought, you know, gosh, I feel really lucky, but I know that I'm not better than, you know, a lot of other people who didn't have Or is this looking back on it? You're... Oh, a lot of it's looking back on it, definitely. But also, you know, there are little things. I remember when I was in middle school, uh, you know, I just had a lot of great friends. I took an exam. I was able to get into a really um, competitive um, magnet high school. Mm -hmm. And there are other kids who could have, you know, uh, they just didn't have that same opportunity to be around that different mix of kids. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when I went to high school, I was surrounded by very hardworking, high-achieving young people. And it had an effect on me. Uh, You know, I I, I guess, you know, it it brought out the competitiveness in me. But then I had friends who, you know, they – friends I've lost touch with in some cases. But, you know, just friends who just went down a different path where uh, for them – you know, just it didn't look like those opportunities were available to them. And, uh, you know, it's hard for me to know um, just how much of that could have turned out differently if maybe, you know, just for this or that quirk, um, you know, of how this or that exam uh, took hold or or this or that positive reinforcement you get from a parent Mm -hmm. or a teacher or what have you. Uh, But I just often think, boy, uh, we as a country – we waste so much human potential because mm-hmm. there are so many people who are capable of doing great things. And even and by that, I don't even necessarily mean, you know, I don't know. You shouldn't have to be extraordinary to lead a decent yes, life. Yes, I, one of the things that you said, I think it was an event at, at an event that we did together that really s- stuck with me where you were challenging the kind of narrative that you you sometimes hear on the right of 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 of, of the path to success. And and I think the phrase was you said you know we we shouldn't um, expect 
the 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 right path forward for every single person is to be super entrepreneur man. Exactly. I that was, it really resonated with me. I no, thought that I, was a really interesting. I really do believe that idea. there are a lot of people for whom what matters to them most is their family, spending time with their family, and uh, just uh, really you know taking on work that is about public service. That's about you know doing right by others and what have you. Not necessarily accumulating assets. Not necessarily achieving fame or fortune. And that is really important to having a, a decent society where you're saying to people, yes, you know, we understand you care mostly about your family. You want to do your part, mm-hmm. but you're never going to be someone who's going to pour your whole life into your work. Um, it, we shouldn't tell people that the way to flourish is to pour every aspect of your being into your professional life so that your personal life uh, becomes a husk. And it's kind of funny because when you see people who are so professionally oriented, oftentimes they're pretty dissatisfied yeah. in other dimensions yeah. of their life. You know what I mean? So, so I think that you know, in a way we want to have a society that allows people to be full, complete people and also communities. You know, there are communities where those communities are enriched by the people who aren't necessarily professional go-getters. They're the people who are actually, um, you know, they're the little league coaches. Yes. They're the people who I was are about to say, it feels like a very American story. One of the things yes. I love about the uh, – it reminds me of a column um, that, again, it's something that really stuck with me that David Brooks wrote in the New York Times. I know he's not, he's not always everyone's favorite. Um, but he he put it really beautifully about the he 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 t- talked about how the story particularly talked about the, the pioneers and he compared it to western movies and the movies of John Ford and how actually they they in contrast to some of the other westerns in in culture that that kind of portray the kind of rugged hero on on his own you know beating the enemy and so on it was all about the John Ford ones were all about building communities. Yes. It was about people who got together as pioneers out in the West and they built the, the church and the and the and the school and, and they literally their their role was to build a community and that's the true spirit. He is absolutely right about that. When you're thinking about the settling of the West, this was absolutely a community endeavor. When you think about the early British settlers to this continent, this was a community endeavor. You could not do it with just one type of person. You mm. needed a range of different kinds of intelligence, different skills. Um, and you know, it's incredible. I mean, I think about these big changes you've seen in gender roles in American society. Um, and you know, it's a really great, wonderful thing that you have incredibly capable women who are now able to achieve leadership roles. This is you know, a really great source of strength. It's also the case that you always had um, women, mothers, fathers. You just had these people who were playing incredibly valuable roles that were devalued. And right. now those roles right. that we've devalued as a society, lo and behold, we realize, oh, wait, we needed those people in the neighborhoods. We needed those people in the schools, in the communities to help ensure that we have an enriching environment for young people. And what happens when you leach all of that intelligence, all of that energy out of community life and you, you, know, you bring it into uh, corporate life and what have you, and that's great. But the thing is that you need some kind mm-hmm. of balance. So let's go back to that competitive high school. Um, I'm interested in at what point you think you started to develop your interest in politics and and, and political ideas. Where where did that come from? Uh, pretty early on, um, you know, my family was definitely one where we liked to read and argue about ideas. Um, but also, when I was in high school, I um, 
took part in debate, um, you know, these the speech and debate activities. So I would meet young people from other schools who had very different perspectives from the one that I had grown up with. And that was really exciting and surprising for me because, for example, you know, I became a conservative later in life. But when I was in high school and I was a you know young kid, I certainly didn't identify with uh, that way. I met conservatives from other high schools from different kinds of families. And I thought, wait a second. These people don't fit the caricature. Um, they are different from what I had so expected. Would you, you have said that you're on the left at that point? Yeah, I think so when I was you know, 14, 15, 16. Um, and I think meeting these young people, they really tested my assumptions. Uh, they made me think differently. So first of all, even when I didn't you know, feel like I fully agreed with them, uh, I thought, well, you know what? They actually do have a point, don't they? They do think – Broadly, they think differently, but there's something about how they're seeing the world that I can learn from. And even now, um, you know, I'm very much on the right. I'm a conservative, but I always try to learn from people on the left and from other political mm-hmm. traditions with other uh, sensibilities. Because otherwise, you know, even when you feel like, gosh, that's really obnoxious, gosh, I really feel like that person has mischaracterized my views about this or that, the thing is, you're the only one who's losing when you're closing yourself off mm-hmm. to learning something from that different perspective. Um, so I think that that's one thing I really benefited from at that age. And so what, can you um, identify a moment when you switched, as it were, or was it a process? It was more of a process, and it began in high school just meeting people who had different views on any number of different issues, on foreign policy, on social issues, on economic issues, and then thinking, you know what, these are actually not troglodytes. These are very intelligent, thoughtful people who have a somewhat different view. Then when I was in college, that's when things flipped a bit more. And, you know, partly it's just being a bit of a contrarian, you know, just thinking that, you know, gosh, all of these people seem to agree with each other. They all seem to be congratulating themselves for agreeing. And and then that didn't sit right with me. But it was also just a bit thinking about, you know, my parents at the time probably thought of themselves as more left of center, as more liberal. But... They were people who had a very hard-headed and pragmatic view of the world. And you know, going back to this idea of positive populism, the idea of having a heart, being a loving, compassionate person who wants to do right by your community and by the world, but also being a realist, also having a sense of limits, a sense of proportion, a sense that actually you do need to learn from your mistakes, the idea that you do need competition. You do need some kind of discipline um, to build working, effective institutions. That appealed to me. And I really did feel, and this is perhaps unfair, but certainly at that age when I was in college, I just felt like a lot of what I saw in the political conversation of young people around me, it just seemed like posturing. Mm -hmm. It really just did seem like these are enormously privileged people who kind of have this very unpragmatic, very ideological view of the world. um, And I just lost patience with it. So it's very interesting to hear you talk about that and explain something, um, I think, uh, very profound, which is the fact that in the last few years, I think you, I'm, I'm, you may not necessarily accept this, but it seems to me that you've been one of the few leading conservative thinkers who've been, shall I say, more open-minded towards the, the Trump phenomenon. To, uh, I'm not going to... Uh, categorize you as being for or against Trump. You may, mm-hmm. you may want to do that yourself. But just talk to me about how you felt as a conservative watching the emergence of Donald Trump and the populist um, revolution that, that accompanied his rise. Well, you and I have been talking about this for many, many years, long before Donald Trump decided to run for president. Uh, and what we've been talking about is that there is an element on the political right 
that is highly ideological, that in a way has seek, sought to be a mirror image of very ideological uh, movements, individuals on the left. And to my mind, that is not what conservatism ought to be. And when you look at Donald Trump and his success, what's really striking is that again and again, he emphasized that he was not an mm-hmm. ideologue. He wanted to do what works. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, whether or not he's always able to do that is an open question and we can debate that. But I did think, you know, gosh, he's someone who got the formula right. So Ross Douthat and I wrote a book in 2008 called Grand New Party. And our argument was the Republican Party increasingly relies on the votes of working class Americans. Mm -hmm. So the Republican Party at a minimum ought to be more responsive when it comes to constructing its policy agenda Mm -hmm. to working class individuals. And besides – you know, when you're thinking about a society like ours, if the working class is not flourishing, the country will not flourish for very long. What you see is a kind of fake patina of prosperity, mm-hmm. not the real thing, when you have a huge swath of the population that feels like it is not able to climb the economic ladder. Um, and, you know, my feeling was for years after that, there were people who paid lip service to that idea, but no one who really seemed to take it seriously. No one was really talking about how, okay, let's do things that make us uncomfortable. Let's do things that might represent a departure. Let's actually learn from our mistakes. Why do a lot of working class voters distrust us so much? Maybe it's not us that's right. Maybe they're the ones who are right and we can actually learn and adapt from that. And I do think that Donald Trump, his great insight was in seeing that there was a huge disconnect between the leadership of the Republican Party and its voter base. He saw that disconnect and he exploited it very effectively during his presidential campaign. Um, and you know, honestly, I, I for years was arguing someone's going to do this. Someone, right. if you do not do it first, someone else is going to do it. Uh, I often think of it as the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. Um, you know, this idea that you know you're going to choose your own destructor. And in a way, you know, it could have been Donald Trump. It could have been someone else. But these. Uh, elite Republicans, you know, they kept thinking, okay, we're going to say one thing on the campaign trail and then we're going to govern this other way and we're just going to keep doing this and see if it works. And eventually you just sow a very deep distrust among your voters and that's why Donald Trump had an opportunity. So the the, the elite Republicans you talk about, I mean, this this is your world. Um, National Review, there's the the famous Never Trump. I mean, tell us about how that feels – do you now? You've been right in the middle of that. Well, there, being- was, there was an against Trump cover. I, I do think that National Review has actually been pretty responsive uh, to this idea that we need a more working class agenda for, for many years. Um, I don't think it's fair to characterize it. And I know that you know, you're, that's not quite what you're saying. But I think National Review has really tried to be a place where you actually do have open debate mm-hmm. about conservative ideology. And in some ways in the Trump years, that's become even more pronounced, partly because people really are rethinking some of of their old assumptions. Um, but you know, you're right to say that when you're looking at the conservative intelligentsia, if you're looking at the um, you know, if you're looking at this world, the think tank world and what have you, um, you know, I think that there are people who really earnestly have always tried to do the right thing, but there are people who are so wedded to the ideas that they've been holding for many years that it's very hard for them to take a somewhat broader perspective. It's very hard for them to let go. Um, and by the way, I think that there are some things that uh, actually should be preserved. You know, I've got to say, I think that Donald Trump gets some things right, and mm-hmm. I think he gets some other things wrong. Mm-hmm. And the big weakness that he has uh, is partly that he's trying to affect change 
without a larger movement, without cadres, without people who actually really know how to work the levers of the bureaucracy and what have you. And, you know, you yourself have had that experience of trying to wrestle with a powerful bureaucracy. And the problem is that you need a variety of different people with different competencies and skill sets. You need them all working together. When you're trying to steer the ship of state, you've got to do that, um, you know, very deftly. And President Trump, you know, he just wants to go, go, go. He wants change now, now, now. And I understand his frustration. But when you're thinking about really steering the ship of state in a different direction, sometimes it requires more diplomacy. It requires more tact. It requires strategy. And I do think that in some domains, he really does get things very right. But in others, I think that you know it helps to deny your opponents sympathetic mm-hmm. plaintiffs. It helps to build trust with people who didn't already vote for you rather than just relying on your existing base. There is another you know, 15% of the electorate, I think, that might have been open to Donald Trump and his agenda had he played his cards a bit differently rather than just always go right back to your original base. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's part of what positive populism is all about. Yes. Because when you think about the changes that positive populism is trying to address, it's not just right now. It's not just 2019. It's about 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And in order to do that, you can't just rely on your existing base. You have to pursue policies that actually grow the base. This is what Margaret Thatcher did. When you're thinking about, you know, taking public housing, taking council estates and giving people a stake, giving people ownership, that's something that really changed Britain in a lasting and durable way. What are the equivalents of that today to really grow the coalition for positive populism? I agree so completely with that. Um, I just wanted to ask you what it felt like being there in the middle of all this. Did you did you experience um, something which a lot of people have reported in the Trump era, which is you know re- really a, a difficult emotional experiences in terms of sort of friendships being broken because either you were you were too pro-Trump or too anti-Trump. Did any of that um, happen with you or not really? There. I certainly think that there's um, you know, a lot of division, but I guess it flows from my perspective. Uh, I guess one reason I identify with a larger political movement is because I don't believe anyone can affect change, political change, policy change as an individual. Mm. I can have many clever thoughts, um, you know, and I think there's value to that. If you're an intellectual, if you're a writer, oftentimes being distinctive has a lot of value, um, you know, being sharp being cutting has a lot of value. But I think for me, I just think of myself as someone who's more of a movement builder. And what that means partly is that you have to reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable. You have to get people who really detest each other to be willing to work together. You have to try to achieve some kind of compromise. That's not for everyone. There's some people whose job it is to really whip up the troops and to be really sharp. Um, And I think that that I don't mean to criticize that. That is really valuable. But for me, in terms of my personality, Uh what I care about... I really care about what's going to happen to this country in 2025, 2035, 2045. I want to, you know, my book is titled Melting Pot or Civil War. And I really do fear that the enmity we have in our politics right now is dangerous. So for me, you know, just people, you know, go in their different directions for all sorts of different reasons. You want to give people room to then walk back. Mm -hmm. You want to give people room to embrace different positions. And you don't do that by backing people into a corner with invective and and by being excessively uh, negative towards them, in my opinion. So the other thing I wanted to um, pick up on in in, in your book was the subtitle, actually, which which is pretty provocative. 
son of immigrants makes the case against open borders. That there's a sort of tension there. There's implicit in there the the notion that any son of immigrants or anyone who's who's benefited from immigration, I put myself in this category, it's it's somehow wrong to be against. So you should be for open borders. Just. Talk to us about how that feels for you. That's very well said. It is a real tension, and it's a tension that silences many people. There are many people who have very nuanced views on immigration, on lots of questions, by the way, uh, who feel they can't speak because they see that uh, potential tension between their identity and between what they think is the right sound policy for the country as a whole. And I wanted to just lean into that and just say that, look – It is absolutely true that my family benefited uh, from immigration. It is also the case that I am part of this society and while I want us to be a humane country that does welcome some number of immigrants, Mm -hmm. I also recognize that any society is a delicate latticework. If you put it under too much pressure, you might actually get the opposite of what you want. By being excessively open, you might get a society that's not more open, but rather a society that's less open because Mm -hmm. you've wound up getting this very extreme backlash. Conservatism is really about this idea Edmund Burke introduced that society is a compact between the living, the dead, and the unborn. The idea that we can't just think about our own appetites Mm -hmm. and our own needs. You've got to think about the long term and that sometimes means making compromises that you might experience as painful. But you've got to do that in order to ensure that this larger collective enterprise that is society is able to flourish. So how do you respond to the – again, I don't know if you've had this Mm -hmm. criticism but but, but, Mm -hmm. but I've I've certainly heard it in relation to my experience, my – Parents were immigrants from were refugees, actually from Hungary, from communism into the UK, and then here I am again as an immigrant um, and benefiting from all the opportunities of this incredible country. Um, to the to the argument that well, you're you're you know you've did well out of it, and you're basically put, you want to pull up the drawbridge for everyone else who's coming along behind you. Well, one thing you could say is that you know if you really do believe that, then I'm the problem. I am the problem right. because I think of myself as an American. And you know, right. perhaps you find that idea offensive, but I think of myself as someone who is very invested in the stability and peace and prosperity of the society. And that means that uh, you know, it may well be something that disadvantages me. So for example, if I believe that I ought to embrace a policy that makes it harder for me to bring in, for example, a cousin of mine mm-hmm. you know, whom I adore into the country, you know, that's true. That's a sacrifice that I would make and I make that and that, that can be a very real sacrifice for many people. But you do that because, yes, it is right and appropriate. You know, you don't say that to wealthy people who say, well, I believe that wealthy people should pay higher taxes. You accept that as they believe that they ought to make some kind of sacrifice uh, for the greater good. So it's a very strange line of argument to me because there are all Mm -hmm. sorts of ways in which one might disadvantage oneself. Now, you could say, oh, well, Raihan, then you wouldn't even have been in this country had you had some alternative set of policies. That's right. Uh, I wouldn't have existed I was born in this country. I was conceived in this country, right? So when you're thinking about this kind of counterfactual world, it's also possible that a world with the more humane policies, the more balanced, more egalitarian policies that I advocate in my book, one thing I advocate are a suite of policies that would make life much better in countries other than the United States. Mm -hmm. I want to see more growth and opportunity in the developing world. It could be that you, Steve Hilton, instead of moving from Britain to the United States, would have moved to Sri Lanka or India because you would have seen opportunity there. We 
do not know what this counterfactual world looks like. All I can think about is what makes sense for American society and its future. And from that perspective, you know, that's where I'm arguing from. Well, it's a really great argument. I do urge everyone listening to get the book. It's it's just such an important contribution. We This, this issue is... It's not just important in itself. It's taken on even more importance precisely because it has become so divisive and so um, so much at the heart of, of, of this tribalism that we're seeing. And it speaks to every other yeah, issue in our society and how right. we think about our society. So please buy the book and I hope you can come back because as I think we've just shown, we'll never run out of things to talk about. We do, do have the reality that we've run out of time, but it was so fun and uh, great to see you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you very much, Steve.